Well, on the morning of Sunday, September 15, 1963, several sticks of dynamite were detonated underneath the front stairs of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. The church was busy with Sunday morning fellowship, but it was also a common rallying place for civil rights leaders. As such, it was a target for the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. The explosion ripped through the whole building and left a five-foot crater in the floor of the basement. After the dust had settled, uh, the bodies of four little girls had been found. One of them had been decapitated. Twenty-two other people had been injured. The girls had been getting their choir robes on. Martin Luther King Jr. called the bombing one of the most vicious and tragic crimes ever perpetuated against humanity to add insult to injury of the four alleged conspirators in the attack. Uh, One was only convicted 14 years later. The two others, two of the others, weren't convicted until 2001, 38 years after it happened. After something tragic and senseless like this happens, most of us ask the same question. Why? Sometimes we ask the question in an emotional way. Why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Sometimes we ask the question in an angry way. Why would anybody do this? Sometimes we ask it in a theological way. Why would God allow this to happen? Why is a natural and normal question to ask after tragedy. We all ask it. Some of us are asking it right now. We're facing our own tragedies. We're facing our own bombings. And we want to know why. It's a question Jesus was familiar with. As the Son of God on earth, Jesus got lots of questions. And he got the why question. To be sure, it's a good question. It's a question Jesus actually answered. But it's a question Jesus answered in a way different than the way we might have expected. We are in a series right now at Rooftop called True Story, Life-Changing Truths from the Parables of Jesus. Here at Rooftop, we understand Jesus to be the Son of God on earth who came to earth to die for our sins and defeat the power of death, but we also understand Jesus to have come to earth as a teacher uh, who told stories to make important points about life and faith. We call these stories parables. And the parable that I want to study with you this morning is maybe a lesser-known parable, but it's an important parable to study because it at least gets at the why question. It's the parable of the barren fig tree. Let me read it to you. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then, he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree. I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? 
Sir, the man replied, leave it alone, leave it alone. One more year, and I'll dig around it, and I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now, as you can tell, this parable is the second part of a passage. It's the second part of a passage, and the first part of the passage is actually a conversation that Jesus is having with some listeners. And in order to understand the parable, you really have to understand the conversation. You have to understand the the literary context of the passage. Now, in the conversation, Jesus is asked about, quote, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, that's an odd sentence for people new to the Bible. Uh, What's a Galilean? Who's a Pilate? And why is he drinking mixed drinks with their blood? Well, this is a reference to a bloody massacre that happened in Jesus' time. Galileans are rural Jews from the region of Galilee. And apparently, these Galilean Jews were offering sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem when uh, the Roman governor at the time, a vicious, cruel, ruthless man named Pontius Pilate, murdered them in an attack on the temple. Now, honestly, we don't know why exactly the subject of these martyred Galileans came up in conversation with Jesus. But in response to the topic, he asks an interesting question. He asks, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? And then Jesus mentions another recent tragedy, the collapse of a tower in Siloam, which is a neighborhood in Jerusalem. 18 people died in that accident. And about this incident, Jesus says, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? So here at the beginning of the passage, two tragedies have been brought up. And regarding both situations, Jesus asks, do you think these tragedies happened because the victims were more guilty than the survivors? That's an odd question that Jesus is asking. Why does Jesus ask this question? What are they even talking about? Well, what Jesus and his audience are probably talking about here is suffering. Jesus responds the way he does here because the audience is probably asking the same question that we do after tragedy strikes. They're probably asking the question, why? Why did these things happen, Jesus? Why were our friends killed at the temple? Why did they die when the tower collapsed on them? Maybe they were asking the question in an emotional way. Why, oh why, oh why? Maybe they're asking the question in an angry way. Why would anybody do this? Maybe they were asking the question in a theological way. Why would God even allow this to happen? People in the first century asked the why question as much as people do in the 21st century. It's a timeless question. Now, interestingly, it seems from their conversation that the people who had asked the question had already assumed an answer. What was their answer? They seemed to have concluded that these people died because they were more sinful than the survivors. That's what Jesus supposes they might have thought. Do you think these people were worse sinners? Do you think they were more guilty because they suffered this way? You probably know that this is a very common answer to the why question. When something tragic happens, not only do we ask the why question, but we furiously try to come up with answers. We need things to make sense, especially painful things. We don't want painful things to have happened in vain. 
So we come up with possible reasons and explanations for why the bad things had to happen. Theologians call these answers theodicies. Not the odyssey, theodicies. A theodicy is a proposed solution to the problem of suffering. What I mean is that we who believe in God can have a hard time squaring the reality of suffering with our belief in an all-good, all-loving, and all-powerful God. It doesn't make sense that an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God would allow such terrible suffering to take place. There have to be a reason, we think. We're always searching for reasons. We're always searching for theodicies. And we can get pretty creative here, too. Sometimes we think that bad things happen because we didn't pray enough or in the right way. Sometimes we think that bad things happen because God needed the bad things to happen in order for better things to happen through the bad things. Sometimes we think that you know, people die because it was just their time, whatever that means. Frankly, a lot of our theodicies, a lot of our attempts to explain suffering are really dumb. I remember when one of my uh, teachers tragically died when I was a kid. Uh, somebody read a poem at the memorial service or the funeral, and the, the essence of the poem was that God needed my, t- my teacher to die because he needed her in heaven to teach the kids up there. Uh, And I remember thinking, oh, how sweet. I hope those kids know how blessed they are. You're such a great teacher. My loss, their gain. And then I remember thinking a few years later, oh, wait, no, that's complete crap. (laughs) (laughs) Just occurred to me. (laughs) Why would God kill, allow to die, however you want to put it, a perfectly good teacher ripping her away from her school and her family to teach kids in heaven. I mean, are there even schools in heaven? And if there are schools in heaven, could God not have enlisted the angels to teach or maybe some of the other dead retired teachers who could have come out of retirement? Are there any other teachers here in heaven, retired teachers who can kind of fill in right now we have a need in the third grade classroom? Socrates, you over there, you're the best teacher ever. Can you fill in? Like, no, I can't. Got hemlock in my system, still working it out. (laughs) Our attempts to answer the why question are noble. They are sincere, but forgive me, a lot of times they're just crap. And here in the story, Jesus deals with another crap answer to the why question. Maybe the people who died at the tower in the temple were more sinful. Maybe they deserved it. That's what he wonders. Do you think that they were worse sinners? Do you think they were more guilty? This is actually a very frequent answer to the question of why people suffer. It's a very common theodicy. People in Jesus' day actually thought it. They thought that bad things happen to people because they are sinners and God is judging them through tragedy. Uh, One time in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a town and they happen upon a blind man. And they realize that the blind man had been born blind. And so the disciples turn to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, hey, teacher, who sinned? 
that this man was born blind. They really did think that blindness and illness was the result of sin, but problem, he had been born blind, so how is that possible? Aha! Must have been his parents, right? Now, we roll our eyes at this, but people still think this today. Very often, we explain tragedy by looking for sin and guilt that maybe God is punishing us or God is punishing others. Years ago, for example, uh, Pat Robertson, a Christian preacher, he suggested that God punished Florida with a hurricane as a judgment on a gay pride parade in Orlando. That's many things, but it's also a theodicy. Again, we roll our eyes, but we think this. When bad things happen, we go desperately searching for a reason, and sometimes we wonder if it's because we're sinners and God is punishing us. I don't want to knock you out here, but when my grandpa died, when I was a kid, I thought for a long time that God was punishing me because I was masturbating too much. That's not what happened. He had a stroke. But that's how desperate we are for things to make sense. Now, I don't doubt that God can punish sin through tragedy. That happens in the Bible. Sometimes God punishes sinners through circumstances. I once knew a man who was addicted to pornography, who even after many, 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 many years refused, just refused to get the help he needed, finally he got testicular cancer and had to have a testicle removed. Of all the cancers for a porn addict to get, right? So I don't doubt that God can punish sin through tragedy, but to naturally assume, as we sometimes do, that tragedy is the result of God punishing sin is to assume way too much. Forgive me, it's just crap. That's what Jesus says. To the suggestion that the people who died in the temple or in the tower or in Birmingham because they were more sinful, Jesus has a very simple answer. No, he says. Those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. He says it with an exclamation mark, too. No. Bad things don't always happen to people because they're more sinful. Your loved one didn't necessarily die because she deserved it. You didn't necessarily lose your job because you were uh, a sinner and God made it happen. Unless you were, like, stealing money from the company. And that's why you lose your job. And, in fact, in which case, you were a sinner and you needed to lose your job. But generally, just because something bad happens to you doesn't mean God is punishing you. That's what Jesus is saying. But here... The story takes a very interesting turn. And this is where Jesus might surprise us. If you're ever reading the Gospels and you do not find yourself blown away surprised by Jesus, you're not reading them closely enough. Jesus goes on to say, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But... Unless you repent, you too will all perish. What? You might not realize this, but the story just took a very interesting turn. 
After having two tragedies brought to his attention by people asking the why question, we think that Jesus would reassure them that the people who died at the temple or the tower didn't deserve it. They were innocent. That's what we think Jesus would say. And Jesus kind of says that. He says that these people didn't die because they were really bad sinners. They weren't worse sinners, as Jesus says. But that doesn't mean they weren't sinners who don't deserve to die. In fact, they do, Jesus says. We are all sinners who deserve to die, and if we don't repent, we will perish. That's surprising what Jesus just said right there. That's like us going up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, why did my grandma die? Was it because she was a bad person? Was it because I'm, I'm a bad person? And Jesus says, no, 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 exclamation mark. No, your grandma didn't die because she's a bad person. Your grandma didn't die because you're a bad person. Now, to be sure, your grandma is actually a terrible person, and you're a really bad person too. And in fact, if you both don't repent, you're going to like suffer eternally in hell. Jesus? <laughs> Bedside manner, please. Man, this guy missed some seminary classes. But that's what he says. At which point, he illustrates by telling a story. I bet you were wondering if you're ever going to actually get to the story. He illustrates with a story. Jesus tells a parable about a man who owned a fruit tree in his vineyard. For three years, the man says, he went to the fig tree looking for fruit. But year after year after year, he found none. After many years, he thinks he's just wasting his time. Bad tree. So he tells the man in charge of the orchard, cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? I have better uses for this dirt. (laughs) The man tending the orchard persuades the owner of the tree to give it one more year. Just, Just one more year, sir, leave it alone. One more year, I'll dig around it, I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit, next year, fine. If not, then sure, Cut it down. That's the story. Now, what's the connection? What's the connection between the first conversation and the story Jesus tells? Well, let me try to make that connection because it's really important to understand in this whole passage. After reassuring his listeners that bad things don't happen to people because they're really bad sinners, generally speaking, Jesus doesn't want anybody to think that they're off the hook. Just the opposite. God doesn't usually punish sinners through tragedy, but that doesn't mean we aren't all sinners. We are all sinners, bad ones, and we will all be judged, and soon our trees will be cut down. That's Jesus' point in tying the parable and the conversation together. His point is this, and I'm putting up here so you can see it. His point is that suffering on earth is a reminder that we will all suffer God's judgment in heaven And we must repent and be forgiven before it's too late. Suffering on earth is a reminder that we will all suffer God's judgment in heaven. And we must repent and be forgiven before it's too late. In the parable, who are we? Not a rhetorical question. Who are we? The tree. We are the tree responsible for bearing fruit in our lives. And many of us are deeply sinful trees who are bearing no fruit. And if we don't bear fruit, if we don't produce good things, we're going to get axed. We're going to get judged. So then, great, Pastor Matt, yet another scary story about God's judgment. So far in our, in our study on the parables, just over half of them have been about God's wrath. I don't know about you, but this is starting to feel kind of old. 
Yes, Jesus, we get it. We're all sinners. We're all going to be judged. Next topic, please. Jesus is like that one guy who finds a way to talk about his favorite topic no matter what everyone else is talking about. You know, this reminds me of my cats. Have I told you about my cats? You know, the color of that car is also the same color as one of my cats. To Jesus, he finds a way to make everything about God's judgment of sinners. I mean, he's having a conversation with some listeners about why tragedy happens, and he finds a way to talk about his cats, about God's judgment of sin. This should tell us something, right? Jesus really did believe in the reality of God's judgment. It was the one thing that he did not want us to ignore or forget. Jesus understood some things that we don't. For starters, Jesus understood that we are all sinners who fall woefully short of God's glory and goodness. We might not be murderers, but we have fallen very, very short of the glorious lives that we are created to live. How can you look at the human race and not conclude that we are all corrupt to our very core? I mean, this is Black History Month, February is. One of the purposes of Black History Month is to celebrate the contributions of African Americans to science and art and literature. But it's also our opportunity to remember that in our not-so-distant past, our nation, government, and churches sanctioned the torture, murder, and enslavement of millions of people based on, if you can believe this, skin tone. Skin tone. Some of the worst offenders were white Christians. We belong to the same nation of people and the same religion that organized and systematized mass enslavement and that still cast a blind eye to racism in our country and around the world. Or, if you're motivated by other issues, last month was Pro-Life Sunday. Over 860,000 preborn children were killed by abortion in 2018, most recent figures. 860,000 lives cut down before they even got the chance to start, mostly out of convenience. How can anybody look at the human race and not conclude that the lot of us deserve to suffer in hell forever? Jesus understood this. Jesus sees that we are all sinners and that we are all judged by a holy, righteous God. What is more, Jesus sees that we are living on borrowed time. We don't have much left. might feel that we have a lot of time left, but we don't. If you take the parable literally, we have one more year, maybe, but don't take the parable literally. Whether or not we have one more moment is God's purview. That's what Jesus sees better than we do, our sin and the imminent judgment of God. But Jesus sees something else too. He sees the final chance we have to repent. That's what he says. But unless you repent, you too will perish. To repent is to change. It means to be forgiven by God for our sins and to depend on God to live new and different lives. It means to stop committing adultery, to stop being greedy, to stop being racist, to stop being lazy, to stop being promiscuous. To repent is to be forgiven and with God's help to change. That's our hope. That can actually happen. And Jesus says that that's going to happen. It's got to happen soon. Think of it this way. Uh, you probably know what a bucket list is, right? 
Bucket list is a list of things that you want to accomplish in life before you kick the bucket. Uh, the movie version of the cliche came out years ago, starring Morgan Freeman, Jack Nicholson. If you can believe this, audiences loved it, critics hated it. It's about two men stricken with cancer, one of whom realizes that he has less than a year to live, so they spend that year enjoying a well-financed trip around the world, crossing stuff off their bucket lists. They skydive. They ride motorcycles across the wall of China. They fly over the North Pole. They visit the Taj Mahal. They cross all kinds of things off their bucket list. But as they are transversing the world, they realize something very important. They got the wrong things on their list. They forgot to include the important things, reconciliation with loved ones, forgiveness of enemies, reconnection with God, living a life of integrity. By the end of the movie, they realize what really should have been on their bucket list, and they cross it off just in time. Sorry to ruin the movie for you, but it's been out for over a decade. <laughs> and it's entirely predictable, so you could have figured that out just by looking at the movie poster. Hmm, I wonder if it ends happily. That's what Jesus is saying. We're all going to die. Whether tragically when a tower collapses on us or naturally from old age, we're all going to die and then we're going to be judged. We're going to be judged for our sin. If we accepted the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, if we're living by his example, we will be forgiven. We will enjoy the eternal bounty of heaven. If we have not, we will perish. We will be cut down. We will be separated from God and his love forever. Given that reality, what's the only thing that should be in your bucket list? Really? Given that reality, what's the only thing that should be on your list or the thing that should be on the absolute top of your list with everything else like really down here low? Repent of your sins. Be forgiven for your sin, for your crimes against God and his holiness. What does it matter if you visit the Taj Mahal? If you die and your soul is not prepared to meet your maker. Communion is our chance to remember that. We celebrate communion every month here at Rooftop. In our understanding, it's a, a visual demonstration of who we are as God's people. We're his family gathered around the dinner table. But communion is also our chance, also our chance to be reminded of what Jesus is talking about here. It's our chance to remember that we will all die. We will all die like Jesus died, and then we will all be judged by a holy and righteous God. In order to prepare for that meeting, we must repent. The Apostle Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he teaches us that. He says that to take communion without repenting of our sins is to invite God's judgment Jesus did not die for our sins so that we would continue to sin, but so that we would be forgiven and sin no more, as Paul writes in Corinthians. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man or woman ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
So I don't know what's on your bucket list this morning, but there's only one thing that should be, repentance of sin. Be forgiven by God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Change your ways. Forgive your enemies. Break your addiction. Love your spouse. Give away your money. Stop your sexism. Repent of your racism. Stop your gluttony. Kill your pride. Love people better. Be baptized and do it now. The owner of the fig tree is coming back soon with his axe to cut it down. You have one more year, maybe, How will you spend it?